Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Cult I Left Behind podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Briggs, and I'm here to tell you my stories of growing up in the IBLP cult, which you might know from the Duggar family. And I'm your other host, Kyle Briggs. I am Amanda's husband, and I have not heard most of these stories before. So stay tuned, and we'll all get traumatized together. All right, welcome back to the next episode. Um, This one's going to be a little different. So what we're going to talk about tonight, today, we're going to lead off with Amanda getting out into the world kind of Mm -hmm. for the first time. Um, Then we'll transition into going off to college. Um, I know in the last episode, we ended with telling people that this episode would start the healing journey. Um, Next episode, (laughs) I started thinking through everything left to share before my second year away at college, which is really when my healing journey began. And there's so much information. This is going to take a whole episode. So... We'll actually start the healing journey next episode. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how we how this goes and how long it takes to get through stuff today. We might have to chop it and turn it into two episodes, but we'll find out. And I also need to circle back and go over a few really key points I missed in the last episode regarding high school okay. events. I remembered them after we finished recording. So that's always fun. But in high school, you know, the pain of of everything and just being in that environment and still being around my brother and not being allowed to talk about it, I mean, it took a significant toll on my mental health. And again, everyone, we're going to, for as long as we're talking about my story, we're going to touch on violence and sexual assault and mental health issues and suicidality. So if those are tough issues for you, just be aware, take really good care of yourself. I'm going to continue to do my best to discuss everything very safely, but that's your, your topic warning. And you're doing a good job at that. I feel like you're, I mean, you do this professionally. You talk about this (laughs) stuff professionally. I talk about it so differently in a professional (laughs) setting. I hear myself on these recordings for the podcast and I'm like, Hmm, professional Amanda would never say that. I never cuss y'all when I'm like at work, which is normal. Like, yeah. you know, it's not. And I, I mean, I just don't go into in these details. It's, it's a lot more polished. It's, this is just a conversation with Kyle, my it's husband that raw, y'all get to listen to the raw uncut version. Yeah. So if you ever see me speak publicly, it is a little different. You know what would be really fun would be to speak publicly on behalf of the podcast because then I could talk like <laughs> this and that would that would be different for me. We'll that get would there. be kind of fun. We'll get there. Okay, uh, have us speak at your event. We'd enjoy that. But mental health. So yeah, that was it. Was just so tough living in that home. I don't think I even need to explain why. We all know. And. I started doing this thing in high school where I would get up in the middle of the night while everyone else was sleeping and I would actually write about it. I would kind of journal and I never said specifically what had happened with Andy, but I alluded to it, which was way more than anything I did (laughs) any other time. 
And I would write and write and write and cry. And I I didn't sleep well because I had nightmares every night. Was that helpful? Like the, the writing? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I honestly don't know because it was also terrifying because what if I got caught? Mm-hmm. So what I did, because I wasn't supposed to talk about it. So what I did was I would take the page out of my notebook and then any page after it or pages after it that might have the indentation from my pen or pencil. And I would sit there and meticulously tear them up into tiny, tiny little pieces and bury them in the trash. And that was one outlet I had for for coping. But there was one night that was so bad. I wanted to be dead. I was over everything. And Rick was out of town for work. And I wasn't supposed to talk to Chris. But I decided, you know, screw it. Like, I'm going to talk to Chris or I'm going to kill myself. Pick one. So I decided to go talk to Chris. And I got out of bed. She was still awake in her room. She was sitting up in bed reading a decorating magazine. And I walked in and I just started pouring out my heart and soul about how much I was still hurting and how hard it was and how scared I was and the nightmares and not sleeping and just everything, the stress, the anxiety, the depression. And she didn't look up. She just kept flipping through her magazine. And when I was finally done speaking, she said, well... You must have liked it because it took you so long to tell us. No, like that's she <sighs> sucks. That's yeah, more. She more than sucks. That is just a horrible, like the last thing you should say to somebody that's being raped and suicidal. Yeah. Like, oh my God. So I told her I didn't like it because I never did, obviously. And and how old you, were you at this point? Mm, probably like 14. I left her room and I never spoke about it again. Did she say anything her, else about years. that? Or oh, gosh, no. Just no. <laughs> pretend it never happened? Mm-hmm. Like wow. everything. And around the same time, my sister Amy, the one who's three years older than I am, she found out for the first time, too, um, that I'm aware of. My three older siblings, Andrea, Andy, Amy, and I... Went to California to visit our grandma, our paternal grandma, when I was 14. And this is a strong marker because uh, Amy had just graduated high school and she also graduated a year early. She graduated when she was 17. That makes me 14. And Andrea, for whatever reason, I don't remember, had to leave early. So we were all, the four of us were all out there for a period of time. Andrea left and then it was just me, Amy, and Andy. And I believe it was the day Andrea left Andy and I got into a big fight. We fought a lot. He nitpicked me. He didn't like how I laughed. He didn't like how I spoke. He didn't like my sense of humor. Like, he just nitpicked everything. And if I wasn't, you know, as a 14-year-old acting like a 34-year-old, I was immature. And, all. like, he just obviously didn't like me. And I would push back and be like, this is how I laugh. Deal with it. Which didn't go over well. (laughs) And... So we we were just always getting into fights and we got into a real bad one that day. And that night, you know, he had stomped off in my grandmother's house, stomped off to the room he was staying in. And Amy and I were in the room we were sharing. She was like, Amanda, why can't you and Andy just get along? And I told her, I I think I teared up and I, I just, I was so over it. I was so over life, over everything at this point. And I told her that something had happened between me and Andy. 
and she got really quiet. And I, Kyle, I want to hear what you think of this because it, I didn't realize at the time how weird it was, but looking back, like, holy shit. So I said something happened between me and Andy. Amy got really quiet and then she goes, Amanda, did he molest you? Like she went right there, like straight there. Yeah. And I said yes. And then I think we both cried and she hugged me and told me she was sorry to hear that. And I think she read some Bible verses to me because, you know, good cult kids, that's what you're supposed to do anytime something happens. And we stayed up really late talking and um, we told her how I hadn't, like no one else knew. She couldn't tell anyone I'd get in so much trouble. She did, you know, blah, blah, blah. But how did she know to go right to that? And I've, this is, y'all, this is 100% speculation. I don't know. Amy said nothing ever happened to her, but she also was like very interested in, things that are sexually inappropriate for a young child when we were like little kids, like both of us under the age of 10 and the things she would draw in her drawing pad and like hide from Rick and Chris and tell me I couldn't tell anyone about, like she had way more sexual knowledge than she should have. And I have often wondered if something went down Mm -hmm. or if perhaps she woke up one of the times he was abusing me in the middle of the night. Yeah. I mean, that would have been, easy for her to have seen something. Mm-hmm. I think the, the the hard part about knowing why she went there first and said, did he molest you? Um, I mean, one, was that something you guys even knew what the word meant? Um, at that point we did, because we'd had a whole sermon series from the cult about how rape is a woman's fault. <laughs> okay. Okay. So <laughs> I guess... I guess if she had a little bit of context there, but also I think it's totally possible that she put two and two together between that and getting some knowledge of sex as she grew up. Cause she was between old. the sermon series. Yeah. Between or- the sermon series and just getting a little bit older. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what her friend group was like, but you know, between just getting older, hearing that and then, being in the room with you so and sleeping cute. We next think, to you. You think we have friends. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just being, you know, you guys were sleeping next to each other mm-hmm. on, I mean, on separate beds, but in the same room. So I think it's totally yeah. possible that she got enough knowledge to know, hey, what I was seeing all this time, that was. And I don't know if she ever did see anything. And if she did, like, I'm she, not mad at the, her. The opportunity existed for her to see it. Yeah, because. Like, she was in the room, it was happening to you while yeah. she was in there. Like, yeah. That, that. And I don't, like, I was I was either asleep or, like, I have trauma blacked it out mm-hmm. every time Andy entered my room and assaulted me when I was asleep. So it's never... possible that he had, she'd seen something, he threatened her, she yeah. had to be, like, who knows? Yeah. But, I mean, you never had your own room. No. And he never had his own room. Correct. And so, it was always happening in a public space well the abuse yeah no because no well well, sometimes as far as bedrooms go (laughs) um sometimes oh man what to say here sometimes it did happen in a public place with a blanket over us Mm -hmm. uh as he read books if you remember books are like a really big anchor in my memory um he would sit on the sofa and read a book with one hand and with the other assault me 
And like my parents would walk by while he was doing like bold, Mm -hmm. bold dude. Again, speaking to his mentality. And then a lot of, a lot, like 90% of the assault occurred behind a locked door with just me and him in the room. So in terms of the stuff he did at night and the possibility that Amy saw something, um, I just, it's very curious to me. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of ways it could be explained. Yeah. And again, I am not convinced I was the only victim and I'm not convinced Andy was the only perpetrator in the mm-hmm. home. I could say a lot more on yeah. that, but not right now. That, that was just weird. So that's how Amy found out. And so then I at least had someone, I don't, I didn't talk to her about it a lot, but like every once in a while it would come up. And I feel like that kind of helped me because there was someone else. And Amy and I, we had a terrible relationship up until like shortly before that. Cause I was always mad at her unfairly because Andy was nice to her and Andy was raping me. Mm-hmm. Um, now I don't know if Andy was doing stuff to her, obviously, but he outwardly like in public was really kind to her, liked her, supportive of her, said nice things about her, built her up. Mm-hmm. And I was just so jealous of that. Like, why? What did I do? Like, I didn't do anything to bring all of this assault upon myself. Why can't he be nice to me the way he's nice to Amy? And and wrongly, I took that out on Amy. And I, I said nasty things to her and I was not nice. And one day when I was like 13, 14, I was like, this is not who I want to be. Like, and I was old enough at that point. I was like, this is not her fault. I know why I'm doing this. It's not nice. It's not right. It's not kind. So I went to her and I apologized and I told her what I'd been doing. And then I just been, been mean to her. Being bitter. i think i told her because i didn't like that andy was nice to her and not me i think i said something along those lines and i asked for her forgiveness and our relationship improved a lot after that which is probably that was probably the setup for why we had that conversation when i was 14 and she was 17 Mm -hmm. i don't think that conversation would have happened had i not realized i was taking my hurt out on her and like Andre, and right. she wasn't perfect either. Like we were siblings. She was mean to me. I was mean to her, yeah. whatever. But like I, I resolved my part of that because mm-hmm. that's not who I wanted to be. So I know within the cult, there was a lot of ideology around, well, you brought this on yourself. <laughs> Did you ever think that? Like, oh gosh. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, and, and there'll be another story later on in this episode <laughs> about adult me grappling with that very issue. Okay. Um, but yes, yes, because everything, you know, with blessings and curses, which is a huge part of cult ideology, everything bad that happens to you is a curse. Or, well, okay, then we get really complicated because then there's like the whole Job thing and maybe it's God just testing your faith. <laughs> it's very, like, whatever, it's just bad. <laughs> Lots of layers to this onion. <laughs> so many layers. But the way, you know, Chris and her verbal and spiritual and emotional mm-hmm. abuse worked, it was just your fault. Yeah. Like, in I think it was the last episode when I liked my ex-husband when we were kids, um, when I was 17 and I had to confess it because of the courtship commitment, he didn't even know I liked him, but I was a whore and a slut. Mm-hmm. So Chris, that was Chris. Like she just crazy bitch. But my, my world really started opening up when I was 16 and I joined the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra Chorus 
which I've mentioned before. That that story's kind of funny. It all started because of Andy <laughs> and restitution. So Rick and Chris pushed for the two of us to spend time together to rebuild our sibling relationship. And so he had to pay for stuff. Like he that was his restitution. He took me to see the symphony for my birthday. And so really like literally trying to get have him like buy you off. Yes. Like that's that was their parenting. Oh my gosh. Where do we on the next episode <laughs> we'll talk about New York. Let me make a note, New York. Yes. So he had to pay like Interesting. Yeah. And so he paid to take me to the symphony for my 14th birthday. And the symphony chorus performed with that. And um, they're one of the top three at the time. I don't know if they still are, but at the time I was part of all of this, they were one of the top three symphony choruses in the nation. And me being me, I was like, I'm going to join them. I'm going to call and see if they'll let me do an audition because I think they held auditions every January and it was October. So I was like, I have time. <laughs> so I start calling them and I'm like, hi, I'm Amanda. I'm 14. I want to audition. <laughs> and they were like, um, no, you're 14. Go away. So the next year I had it like in my calendar and I called back and I was like, hi, I'm Amanda. I'm 15 now. I called you last year and I was too young because I was 14, but I'm 15 now. Can I audition? And they were like, go away, child. So then the next year I called back and I was like, hi, I'm Amanda. I'm 16 now. I'd really love to audition. I've called the last two years. I know I don't meet the age requirement, but can you can you give me a chance? And I think just to make me go away, the chorus manager was like, fine, you can have an audition. So I went to the audition. So Andy took you to that? No, Rick okay. took me to that. It's like one of my only good memories with him. And Rick took me to that. And I was so freaking nervous, y'all. Like, oh my gosh. I'd been performing in some pretty high stakes environments for a while at that point and competitions and, you know, I'd done pretty well. And so I had some practice with all of this, but I was scared out of my mind because I'm like a 16 year old kid, mm -hmm. right? And most of the people in this elite chorus are in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s. Uh, some of the positions are paid. The bulk of them were volunteer, but it was like an honor to be part of it. It was, I mean, I just loved it. But yeah, so I go in and bef before I do the singing part, they're like, here's a music theory test. I didn't know anything about music theory. So I just like BS'd my way through the test. So then I walk into the scary room for the, the performance portion of it where I had to sing. And it was the director and the assistant director and the pianist and me. <laughs> and they hand you a sheet of paper and they're like, sightseeing this. And for those of you who aren't musicians, it's where you have to look at music you've never seen before and like sing it correctly without any help from an instrument, like no piano. I think they give you the starting note and then you have to do all these crazy intervals and like read the music and get it perfect. And I bombed it. I didn't know how to sightseeing. So they were like, okay, well, how about you sing your song now? And then I crushed my song, which had a lot of high C's, which is a very, um, in the world of like classical vocalism for sopranos, that's a, it's a big deal if you can nail high C's and, and D and like the F and G above that. And I could do that. And my song showcased that and I did it really well, but I still thought like, I'm not getting in. I have failed. I failed. I failed. So I, 
I go back out and I sit down next to Rick and I'm like, I don't think I got it. And then I had to wait to get the results. And in the midst of this, like we're in this big long hallway with like, it's lined with chairs and the audition room was on the left. And then the room where you went to get your results was right in front of me. So I saw everyone who didn't get in, like they would come storming out and it was like so dramatic and they would slam doors and throw papers and like people were they were mad, man. And I was like, oh, that poor, the poor manager, like I, her name's Chris. It's like, I'll be nice to her when she tells me I didn't make it. Like, I'm not going to put her through that. <laughs> so I go in and I sit down and I'm like, hey, I know I didn't make it. It's okay. And she was like, oh no, you made it. And I was like, what? <laughs> really? <laughs> like I almost fell off my chair. And she was like, yep, you made it. Um, the condition is that in a year, you're going to have to re-audition. And you have to do better in your theory and your sight singing. Like, you really got to nail that. And I was like, I will do it. I will do it. So I got to sing with them for three seasons. It was it was a turning point in my life. You look like you have something to say. So you didn't get in that year. So no, you, I did. I oh, did. They so, let me in. <laughs> so you, but they wanted you to audition again next year? Everyone had to. Okay. Everyone had to. Um, because again, it's like it's an elite course. So mm-hmm. every season you had to re-audition okay. to be part of it. Or maybe it was every two seasons, but they made it one for me. I don't know. But there were like a lot. You had to re-audition. Like you mm-hmm. weren't just in and done. You had to re-audition mm-hmm. pretty regularly. And being part of the MSO chorus just was such a positive experience for me because it provided me a different context that was my own in which I could thrive. Because I had all of these people who loved me, like coming from my home environment where I was treated the way we've, you know, talked about in previous episodes, walking into that room and 150 people who were like, you're Amanda, you're the 16 year old, come sit with us. And, And they just like loved me and I loved them. And they like literally wrapped their arms around me and just made me part of their group. And I had friends, like they were 40, 40 year old women, but like, they were like, come sit over here. You sit with us now. This is the soprano section. Welcome. And it was just like mind, it was mind blowing for me. I didn't, I didn't know why they liked me. (laughs) I was used to not being liked. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's a big group of people. Yeah. And this is your, for the most part, first big experience outside of the cold. I mean, outside of some your softball days, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And which, you know, that's still a much smaller number. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like 150 people is a, a large group of people. And, mm-hmm. you know, then you had your own little click inside of that with the, with sopranos. the sopranos and they, you know, and they're older. Like they were, adults. they were forties, fifties, sixties. Like these were well-established people established in their careers, established in their lives and relationships. And I got to see wonderful things like what a healthy marriage looked like. Part of that carpool I mentioned before was a married couple. They were both educators. So they grilled me. That was the only stressful part. Like they grilled me on my education and I had to like do a lot of dancing to not lie, but also not disclose how shoddy my education mm-hmm. was. Um, and at that point I was a lot more in control of it. I was trying to figure out like I had gotten on, um, I'd gone online and found like, what are the requirements in the state of Wisconsin to graduate high school? And I was actively like forcing Rick and Chris to let me work toward all of that. So I was, I was in a slightly more stable space 
with that, I was still teaching myself, but things were, were getting a little better. But they, they had ideas and, and like dreams for me about my career and my future. And, and they taught me like other options for adulthood than being a good little cult human, which I was already not yeah. wanting to do. Well, I mean, those were women that weren't just stay-at-home moms, I assume. Right. Some of them they were all doing had careers. And yeah, they were professional musicians. And at the time, that's all I wanted to be. Um, I, I had some, I mean, it was a real culture shock wake-up call to just how much more there was in the world and, and just people like they didn't seem demon possessed, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know. I mean, this was so a, lovely. Yeah, this wasn't a, a religious no choir. Or no, no, group, so. and this is like the arts, right? So mm-hmm. you had all walks of life intersect, and I saw things I'd never seen before, like like men kissing. And I remember, like, we were on a bus, we were driving to a performance, and they were, like, making out a couple seats over. And I was like, am I going to hell because I saw it? Like, how does this work? Because no one had ever talked to me about anything other than straight relationships. Well, it wasn't normalized. No, it was not normalized. And all I knew of it was that it was, like, evil and satanic. So I, you know, obviously don't think that. But back then I was like... Oh my God, am I going to hell now? Cause I saw it. Like, how does this work? And I didn't want to tell Rick and Chris. Mm-hmm. Cause I knew, I knew that they would pull me out of there immediately oh, yeah. if they knew I was seeing and being exposed to like non cult ideology mm-hmm. to that extent. So I just kept that whole portion of my life. It was mine. It was my private little bubble where I went and I was accepted and valued and loved and respected and cared about. And I had friends and people who liked me. And I think honestly, my mental health started improving for a while and I was doing something I loved. Like I, Mm -hmm. I loved classical music performance and, and then, and then there was one time when, uh, the bubble accidentally got a little burst. We were preparing for a Christmas program and Doc Severson was playing and like he's he's legend and he wanted to do this Beatles song. And I didn't know anything of it. I don't I don't even remember what it was called. I didn't know anything about the Beatles. But on the way home from rehearsal, you know, I would tell whichever parent picked me up from carpool like, "Yeah, we're working on this song," you know, like just generic stuff. And I named the Beatles song and Rick flipped his shit. He was like, that is a satanic song. That is, what is it? Like Hare Krishna and that's demon worship. And you can't be part of that performance. And I was like, okay, um, so contractually I have to be there. <laughs> like I have to be on stage. And he was like, then you will have to sit down for this song. And y'all like, okay, we're talking about a big fancy symphony like concert center, mm-hmm. you know, like with the whole orchestra on the stage and like thousands of seats and the red velvet drapery, like that, that's the environment. And I'm like, uh, I, I have to sit down on stage in front of thousands of people. How is this going to work? So I was like, all right, I'll ask, I'll ask the chorus manager what we can do. So I went to her and this was so awkward and embarrassing but good kid that I was. 
you know, the arrow must fly straight. I, um, I went to Chris and I explained like the song was against my religious beliefs and I, I was going to need to sit down for that song. And I think, I think being a minor is what saved me because she was like, well, I can't make you your parents slash guardians are saying, no, I can't make you. And, and we want you to sing. So yes, you can just sit for that song. So then I had to go back to the soprano section and explain to everyone around me, Hey, nobody panic. When I sit down for this song, I'm not sick. I'm just not allowed to sing it. And they were like, what? I was like, yeah, my dad said I can't sing it. They were like, what? (laughs) So then I had to explain, like, it's against my religious beliefs. And my dad says I can't sing it. And then they all, I think they all felt really bad for me. And no one gave me a hard time about it. But I had to sit down for like four or five or however many performances we did for this one song. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, subtly stand back up again. And... In the midst of all of this, I had I had my wonderful, wonderful vocal coach I mentioned before. Her name is also Amy, so not to be confused with my sister. This is this is the good Amy. We like this Amy. She was a college professor of music, and I was with her from the age of 14 until I think 18. And she's the vocal coach who like got me prepped for everything and uh but she wasn't she wasn't in the cult. Mm-hmm. So, you know, who gotta be careful. And, but she, like, that was the messaging from Rick and Chris. I just, I loved her and she was so good to me. And she always gave me hugs, like at the beginning and end of my lesson. And she told me I had Audrey Hepburn eyes, which made me so happy as a 14 year old. <laughs> it's hard being a 14 year old girl and have anyone you trust and respect, like say something positive about you is... Like, obviously, I haven't forgotten it. And, you know, Kyle, in the last episode, you asked about how I paid for lessons. After the first year, when Rick and Chris stopped paying for my lessons, I started paying for them. And I would normally pay her in cash. Mm -hmm. And then one day, I didn't have cash, but I had my checkbook. Because, you know, old school. This was a long time ago, people. And I was like, hey, I'm going to write you a check today, okay? And she was like, yeah, that's fine. Or I said, I have a check for you today. And she's like, that's fine. She opened, I had it folded. I handed it to her. She saw, she opened it up and saw my name on it. Mm-hmm. I was like, Amanda, are you paying for these lessons? And I mean, it had been a year or more of me paying for my own lessons. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I pay for these. And she was, she was quiet. And then she, I might cry if I tell the rest of this. <laughs> she, um... She was really quiet, and then she looked up at me, and she was like, you're not going to pay me anymore. And I was like, what? She was like, no, I am teaching you for free. It is my honor to teach you. And for the rest of the time I was with her, she gave me lessons almost every week for like a year and a half for free. And like Angela, she was one of the safe spaces in my life, and it's in, in therapy, I just I have the best therapist um, now. And I've had multiple amazing therapists in my life, but the one I'm with now, she, um, she and I have talked a lot about mothers and mothering. And before I met my adoptive mom, and we'll, we'll talk about my parents, my adoptive parents eventually, but 
like the two women who come to mind immediately for me who were stand-in mothers without even knowing it were Angela and Amy and my, my two vocal coaches from 13 to 18. They just poured so much love and light and hope into me and showed me that there was more to life than the cult. And there was more to life than the path the cult had put me on. And they're, they're both like strong, independent women. <laughs> and um, gosh, I like, I'm really trying not to cry here. They made such an enormous investment into me, not just through music and, and being a safe space, but just loving me, mm-hmm. like just feeling loved like that was so crucial. Yeah. I think any, I mean, that was amazing of her to do that. Yeah. And, you know, obviously that was financially a hit for her. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it was, I think the right thing to do. And I think it's important that, you know, as an adult that you see those things and make those decisions. Um, and I think a lot of coaches are like that. And I think for most people, even outside of the cult, like there's always teachers or coaches that have made huge impacts in people's lives. And I think that's probably the reason some of those people do those jobs. I mean, we all know teachers don't make a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, those types of stories is, you know, why they, why they do what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those of those of you that are listening, that are coaches and teachers, um, you can see the impact. Make a you- difference. Okay. We're both going to cry. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> but yeah, to everyone who invests in others, like, hang on. <laughs> Tears. <laughs> the difference you're making is far more than you'll ever know. So thank you for what you do. And I, I mean, Angela and Amy are two people that like, I don't care how old I get. I'll always remember them and they'll, they'll forever have a place of love and honor and respect in my heart just for, for being those safe, loving female figures that I needed so desperately and did not have at home or at church or anywhere else Mm -hmm. in my life. And I think you're still, you're still in contact with them. Yeah. I'm still in contact with Angela. Um, Amy and I like just, kind of fell out of touch because I don't think she uses social media, (laughs) but I could find her. Mm -hmm. I could find her. And I was actually thinking about that earlier this week as I prepped for this episode, like it's, it's been a minute. Like I, and I have in the past, I've reached out we've met up for coffee and stuff when I was back in her area. So it's probably about time to do that again. So you're in the course Mm -hmm. for three seasons, three seasons. And then what happens after that? How did, how did you okay, stop so, being a part of that? Cause I went off to college. Okay. So you might ask like, how did college suddenly become an option? Cause it wasn't, and it wasn't something we had financially planned for or anything as a family. I'm surprised um, you were even allowed to go. Well, eventually like, okay. So I think I've mentioned in the past, there's like that window in the cult of like the optimal age to get married. Mm-hmm. And Andrea passed it without anyone courting her. So Rick and Chris were like, huh, we have this daughter 
in her mid-twenties who needs to be able to support herself in case no one wants to marry her. What do we do? Oh, she could, because like the cult didn't pay much at all. So Andrea started working, I think, for a bank as a teller. And, but that wasn't going to like support a life. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was still living at home and you know, all of that stuff. So I think they sat down and they started talking with her about like what jobs she wanted to do. And they all required a degree and she didn't have one. So then they started looking into like very conservative Christian colleges and decided she could go to Moody Bible Institute, downtown Chicago. So she applied and got accepted to be a music major. Because again, as a woman, what can you do from home? Teach music. How can you serve the Lord in ministry? Through music under a man at church. Uh, But so she got to go when she was in her mid-20s, which opened the door for the rest of us. So I think Andy went somewhere for like tech stuff because guys could do business. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to do ministry. That was for the women. Um, I mean, ideally we would all do ministry, but like men had to support a family. So Andy was allowed to go into... Like, he did some sort of computer programming degree, I think. And then Amy, Amy initially also wanted to go into computer programming, computer programming, but either she didn't like it or wasn't good at it or something. She ended up switching to political science. And, but the official story was that she had to leave behind the computer stuff because if she got a degree in that and got a job, she'd be. Taking a job away from a man. Oh, I thought you were going to say she was going to make too much money. Well, you also can't make more than your husband. <laughs> that's right. I thought you were going to Yeah, get. that's one of the seven basic needs of a wife. Somehow not making more money than your husband is a basic need of a wife. Mm-hmm. We'll cover that in a different episode. And then I was, I, I wanted to go to a conservatory of music. And like, you guys, this was... More than half my lifetime ago, I can't sing opera now to save my life. But once upon a time, I was actually quite good. And my musical mentors wanted me to consider Juilliard. And I knew I wasn't going to be allowed to go to Juilliard. Like New York City, very like secular school, edgy. I think it had dance. Ooh, don't have sex. It might lead to dancing, you know. So I started looking for other really good conservatories of music that had programs I could afford. And I found one in Philadelphia called the Curtis Institute of Music. And it just really seemed like it was going to be a good fit for me, for my budget, for my personality, for my aspirations as a musician. And I begged and I begged and I begged. And my teachers tried. Like Amy was talking to my parents and trying to get them to let me go to summer camps for music and apply for conservatories of music and stuff like that and and rick kind of led me on for a while it was it was really heartbreaking like he was actually talking to me like he was gonna let me go to curtis if i got accepted and in the end he decided i couldn't go study to be a professional musician i would quote get a big head which is hilarious to anyone who knows me and then the only option left was what he wanted, which was for me to go study music ministry mm-hmm. at a Christian college. So were you even allowed to apply to Curtis? No. Okay. No. I think I had everything filled out, mm-hmm. and I wasn't allowed to mail it in back in the days of snail mail. That's rough. Yeah. So, so the next hurdle was I had to take the ACT or the SAT. Mm-hmm. I had to pick one for Moody. That was part of their application process. Mm -hmm. Um, Very standard. 
I had never taken a standardized test. I had never taken any test before in my life before I sat down for the ACT. So I was this totally like almost 100% self-taught kid. I I think I was 16 or I had just turned 17. Um, never taken a test before. I had barely ever even been in a school before because they're, you know, like the halls of Satan. And I had to go into like a high school oh, to sit for it. You had to go so take that the was, test there. And I didn't know what bubble sheets were. Like there was so much I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how timing on tests worked. It was. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're, they're scary and a little confusing even for people who go to normal public schools. <laughs> like they're still daunting to see, you know, you get the little thin, you know, like half booklet. sheet of paper and all these bubbles and there's boxes mm. everywhere and it's, you know, it can be a little what to fill in. And yeah. So I, I somehow passed the ACT with an above average score and got into Moody to study music and ministry. And uh, Rick and Chris dropped me off. I was 17. They got me, you know, they helped me carry all my stuff into my dorm and I said goodbye to Chris. And then when I said goodbye to Rick, I was shocked because he was like sobbing. And he wrapped me up in the biggest hug. And he was like, he cried, like, you're going to do great here. And he told me later that the day I moved out for college was the day the sunshine left the home. And I think he's full of shit. I kind of do too. <laughs> I mean, I think the statement is accurate, but I don't think he believed it. Well, I think, like, I think both Rick and Chris would, like, get caught up in the drama of it all. Mm -hmm. And, like, I mean, maybe they loved me. They didn't act like it. Maybe they did. But it it always seemed like it was more like, well, we should be emotional now. So cue emotions, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's hard to believe they... They believe that after all the, you know, neglect and hurtful yeah. things they said to you and all the abuse they let happen in their house. Yeah. So it's hard to believe that they actually believe that. Yeah, it's a weird memory. I have really mixed feelings about it. Because it's like it should be precious. Mm-hmm. And instead I'm like, was that all a lie? Yeah. I think that. Might have been a lie. I I, I would assume it was probably very scary for them because now they're losing (laughs) control of you. Kind of. Were they though, Kyle? I mean, you were not at home so much. Oh yeah. I mean, you weren't at home. Like the you know, they couldn't keep an eye on like who's she calling on the Mm -hmm. phone that's you know attached to the wall in the living room. Mm -hmm. You know, now you're you're living somewhere else. Because you were living on campus, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, like, moved into a dorm. How crazy was it for you to show up on, I forget what the first day of, of orientation. Yeah. Like, that first day of college is. But, like, how overwhelming or, like, what was that like for you to show up on campus and there's, you know, a thousand or thousands of... It's a small school, so I think the max student body was, like, 1,500 yeah. So, I mean, still probably over a thousand people there that day. I think I was nervous and scared. And I mean, it, it was a different context than the chorus. Like in the chorus, I didn't have to be a good cult kid. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like I still upheld all of the rules and did everything I was supposed to, but I didn't have to talk about like spiritual stuff all the time. Oh, Whereas at college, I had to figure out how to talk about spiritual stuff that was like kind of like the cult, but not totally like the cult. And I was expected to maintain cult ideology, even though I was going to classes that didn't exactly teach cult ideology. It was it was a much more complicated scenario. What, uh, so what religious belief did the college have? Like what denomination uh, of church um, was that in general? Or did they? Like they're just protestant i mean they had everything i can't remember if they're like dispensationalist or calvinist though i think they might be dispensationalist which don't don't i, see I don't even, know don't even worry is. about it it's fine <laughs> don't even worry about it and the other the other funny story from the day i showed up so we take the elevator up to the fourth floor which is where i lived in the women's one of the two women's dorms and i got off the elevator and you like walk out into this community, like, um, I forget what it was called, but like basically the shared living area that had like mm-hmm. sofas and stuff like that. You call them like a quad. Um, like the middle. I think we just, we might have just called it the common area. Actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And right when you got off the elevator, there was a big sign like, welcome to whatever, I think Smith 4. We're going to just get to know each other so well this year. And we're going to meet every week or whatever it was every month. And we're going to sit around and share our testimonies and our stories from our lives. (laughs) And I remember thinking to myself, ha, 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 that will never happen. I will never speak about what happened to me publicly. Like no one will ever know. And the joke's on me because the people of the number of people who've heard my story at this point is like in the thousands. So, so, <laughs> so sharing your testimony is very big in Christian Church culture. culture and in and in the cult. So, but you weren't like you were told to specifically not do that, well, or just like leave out all that part. All the abuse, okay. and like couldn't talk about that. But that, like, with the sign, more what she was talking about is, like, the things we've overcome and all of this. And I'm like, no. (laughs) Right. No. I mean, that's usually the part that makes up your testimony. Yes. You talk about pre-church life and your, your, the things you've done, the sins you've committed and the, you know, the ways you've changed. Like, that's what a testimony is when I think about it. What's different between, like, normal church testimonies and cult testimonies? So, normal church, you're like, I was a sinner, and now I'm saved by grace, and this is when I met Jesus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cult testimony, I was a sinner, and then I met Bill Gothard, and I went to the, the IBLP seminar, and it changed my life, and then I met God. But I follow Bill Gothard now. Like, it's the testimony is more about how you got to IBLP than it is to how you got to Jesus. And I just realized that. That's interesting. So that's that's a fun fact. Um, Another really interesting thing happened to me my first in my first couple weeks at school. We had a practical Christian ministry or PCM requirement every semester where we had to go every week and like be a servant of Christ in some part of Chicago that was picked for us usually. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, as a freshman, for sure, or as a first semester on student, on campus student, it was for sure Mm -hmm. picked for you. And mine was um, an after school program in the inner city, real bad part of Chicago. And 
we had to get there using like buses and the L and, and that was fine. Um, we got out there. It was, it was a really scary neighborhood. We got in the school, we met with the staff, we figured out how we were going to be working with the kids. Cool. Time to go back to school. Broad daylight, six of us, three males, three females. We walk past an alley and a group of guys grab me and start like pulling me into the alley. And I like yanked free and kept walking. And like, I think the whole group was just like, ah, they were like stunned. And I'd, I'd grown up walking around Chicago, granted not that part of it, but I kind of knew how you behave. Like you just, you do, you never let someone pull you into an alley. You just, you get the hell out of there. So I did that. And when I got home that day, um, cause I think at that point I was still talking to Rick and Chris like every day. I told them what had happened and, and get this Rick freaked the fuck out, called my school and demanded that they give my group a van if they were going to make us go into the inner city so that we would not be walking the streets in that part of town. That's so weird. So when it's his son, I have to shut up, but you know, some stranger grabs Mm -hmm. my arm Mm -hmm. and we need a van. All of a sudden he cares. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. And I was smirking through the whole story because you're from inner city Chicago. I'm from rural Oklahoma and we I have- terrify him guys. <laughs> like when we get to a crosswalk, I'm like, do you, do you want manslaughter? Like I'm going to walk. Well, it's not that it's your, <laughs> your mannerisms with people. And I'm like, Oh, there's someone broke down on the side of the road. Let's stop and help them. And you're like, we do not make eye contact we with keep anybody moving. <laughs> So even when we Speak go to no one, yeah, even when we go to the city, and I've you know she, I've been to Chicago with her, uh, you know he's so sweet and innocent. I have to tell him like <laughs> Kyle, you have to take your wallet out of your back pocket. Like you can't do that here. Yeah. So we have very different mannerisms and are used to very different social, I guess, cultural situations. You're wonderful, and I love you, but also you you are such a country boy, and I. Don't ever go to a city without me. I'll protect you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. So after that, I wasn't allowed to leave campus without permission. So you're like, so oh, you're free. And I'm like, ha, ha, ha. I know the rest no, of the story. So nobody that was with you said anything or didn't like help you or No, anything? I think like keep in mind there are 18-year-old kids. I think the oldest That's one there was like 20. Still. They were shocked, and I think some of them didn't even realize what was happening until like they turned and saw me like yank my arm out and okay, keep going. So you were already kind of done. I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I resolved it pretty quickly. Yeah. But yeah, I couldn't. I for the next like year or two, I was not allowed to leave campus without calling home and getting permission. And I was that just a normal thing, or just because of this incident? I don't remember. It might have been normal or it might have been because of the incident but you know good kid i obeyed it the only times i was allowed to go without like calling was you know my jobs Mm -hmm. those were agreed upon like well amanda has to leave campus to go to work so you know but if i if i had to come home after dark i had to call someone to walk me home which was really embarrassing the way that worked out was my school had brother and sister floors so every year um, one floor of a male dorm would get paired with one floor of a female dorm. And the goal was like community and, 
you know, it, so if you needed someone, you had someone to call and, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. So I'd have to call the brother floor and get someone to walk me home a block and a freaking half after dark, after work for like a year. It was so embarrassing because like the job where I would have to stay till after dark, like I could see my school, like I could see my dorm when I walked out the door. But no, I would be outside the umbrella of protection if I didn't call someone to walk me home and Satan's fiery darts would get me. <laughs> it's a terrible way to live. So before you keep going, what are you drinking over there? Mm, a non-alcoholic vodka soda. How's that as compared to a regular vodka soda? You know, I don't think vodka has a very strong taste. So it honestly tastes about the same. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I tasted it after I made it. It tastes pretty good. Yeah. What are you drinking? Or what did you drink? I, I had a painkiller. Oh, why don't I get a painkiller? <laughs> it's pretty good. It's like coconut milk and orange juice and. Is it rum? Rum. Mm. And there was something else in it. I forget. It's gone now, but it was good. Okay. So you well, got to gotta call. The brother for it. Brother floor. And speaking of the brother floor, guys and gals could not mix. Um, we couldn't like go individually into or? like we could not go into the male dorm. The mm-hmm. males could not come into the female dorm. Um, even for like visits or to hang out in the common room, except a couple times a year when we had open house. And then for a couple hours, we could, you know, for the prescribed time, go into the dorms and hang out. We'd always make it like a big christian kid party i'm Mm -hmm. trying to so like i guess video games and streamers and balloons no booze because we couldn't we had to sign a commitment that we would not drink alcohol or have sex the entire time we were a student of the moody bible (laughs) institute so i signed so many freaking commitments about sex oh my gosh between the cult and my highly conservative school like I didn't even own my own body or my own choices, but it was fine. I was really scared of sex and didn't want to have it anyways, you know, having been raped and all. So we had the first year or the first semester, I think it might've just been the first semester. I had the best room. I had a corner room and I had three roommates. The one who shared like my bedroom, she's great. And then the two who shared the other bedroom, they were like problem kids, according to the school. And we all got kicked out of the room at the end of the semester because they were found in there with boys during one of the open houses. They were either like kissing, which you're not allowed to do on campus, or I don't know if it was worse, um, according to the school, worse according to the school. But we lost the room, and which brings me to PDA. You could not kiss on campus. You could do a brief greeting hug with someone of the opposite gender, and you could hold hands, and that was about it. So keep in mind, the school is like smack dab in the middle of downtown Chicago. So all you had to do to get off campus was like run across the street. So mm-hmm. people would. They'd run across the street. They'd make out. They'd come back to school. They hadn't broken any rules. <laughs> so Was there any, like was there a park or something across the street? Or the like no. literally standing in front of the 7-Eleven like making yeah. out? Okay. <laughs> Basically that. Yeah. Okay. It was hilarious. Like, I don't know why. Oh, gosh. The, the conservative agenda is always you can't touch each other. Like. People will find a way. Maybe just teach them more about, like, consent, dignity, respect. Protection. 
Because yeah. <laughs> they were like, Moody was horrible about that and they still are. And as an alumni, I've been in contact with them because they would sweep sex scandals under the rugs. I mean, I basically went from one cult to another mm-hmm. with that. And, you know, female students would get expelled. So like no one's allowed to have sex, right? But if a couple was caught having sex or if one of the male students raped one of the female students, the female student would be expelled. Wow. For tempting her brother in Christ. So they still had that same oh gosh mentality. Yeah, bad, wow. bad. Yeah, I would definitely say it's one cult to another. Then, like that's mm-hmm. that's just crazy. That I mean, just to even pick sides at all, whether that's you know kick the male out or kick the female out or, or kick them both kick out, kick them both out. Like they just both to, broke the community right. in non-rape, like in consensual forums they they both broke the covenant they right. signed so why is the female getting punished exactly oh and my first month there um who remembers gauchos from the early 2000s we a lot of female students had them and we they were banned on campus because the male students went to school leadership and said that they made our butts look too good what are, so what are these? They're like culottes, but they're like okay. So think yoga pants, but kind of like swingier, loose, like looser in the leg, like hmm. culottes. I have no idea. You don't remember no. this? This this wasn't part of the fashion scene in Oklahoma. In <laughs> I don't think 2005. so. But we were like a decade behind everywhere else, so you know. <laughs> they were really comfy. They were like lounge, like athleisure, mm-hmm. and they made our butts look too good, so they were banned because the male students <laughs> complained that they were making. Um, our gauchos were making them lust. Yeah. And sure. the school upheld that. <laughs> so that was that was the Moody Bible Institute and PDA rules. So I guess we've talked about your f- first day of college and your experiences going off campus mm-hmm. in the PDA. Mm-hmm. And how, I- once again, rape is the woman's fault. Yep. Just- you know, casually throwing that in there. Keeping keeping that consistent with the cult. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you're at college mm-hmm. alone. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you're still on a girl's dorm, mm-hmm. but you're surrounded by 18-year-old boys, 20-year-old <laughs> boys now, young men. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, were you, like, scared by that? Were you attracted? Like, were you trying to find a boyfriend? Like, what, how, what were you thinking? I was there to study. <laughs> that's in that a talking turn of events. Yes. I was there to get my degree, and it, Not it was tempted a, at all. It huh? was a joke. Well, I mean, I had crushes and stuff, but it, it was a joke on campus that most of the the female students were there for their MRS, their Mrs. degree. They <laughs> wanted to be pastors' wives because Moody churned out a lot of guys who went to seminary and became pastors. God help our nation. And but I just like I wasn't allowed to date. Mm-hmm. I had to court. So that means you can't have like any romantic interaction with a guy unless he gets permission from your father first. And oh my gosh, like I still cringe about this. It's It's been a long time. And if anyone I went to school with listens to this, if you were one of the guys who asked me out, like, I'm so sorry, you poor thing. So a guy would be like, hey, I'd like to go get coffee with you and just like get to know you. And I'd be like, well, I'm not allowed to date or get to know anyone without my father's permission because I have to court. So you'll have to call him and get his permission to hang out with me. Did they even know? Can I just like fall under the table now? <laughs> I mean, what do they say when you say, I uh, need to, I'm, uh, I can only um, court? Uh, 
we can't even get to know each other? Because, I mean, when I hear that, I'm like, <laughs> okay, this is like real old school, like, English, yeah. you know, 18, you know, ni- early 1900s, well, I had 1800s kind of virginity anti-dating pledge with my father that I had to sign when I was 15, and it was, like, framed on the wall back home. We had to do that. <laughs> my time frame may be off there, but that sounds like real old, like, courting. Mm-hmm. Must court the lady. But that's what Bill Gothard taught. Parents were the authority of the relationship. We'll do we'll do a different episode on that. So did you ever actually call, or like, did anybody call your... your... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was oh. real awkward. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and, like, so one time I got back in my room, it was like, so-and-so called for you. Here's his number. And I'm like, shit. Because it was just a rotary phone on the wall. So she could hear everything. It wasn't like I had a cell phone and I could, like, mm-hmm. you know, we, that's not how we communicated personal. back then. I had a cell phone, but everyone just used these dorm phones. Mm-hmm. So I had to explain courtship to this poor dude while my roommate listened. <laughs> I think I've trauma blocked what she said afterward. Did anybody end up calling your father and no, asking for God, permission? No. And I didn't want anyone to. I was um I was in love with the guy who's now my ex-husband through that whole time and I was I was pretty heartbroken cuz I wasn't allowed to talk to him. Because I liked him, so I wasn't allowed to talk to him. So, unless he initiated contact, like if he emailed me, I could email him back. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't reach out to him. So, you know, we'd gone from being supervised friends in high school, where I did initiate contact sometimes, and to like me never starting a conversation. So he thought... I was just like off in another state doing the college thing and forgotten all about him. And I knew I was supposed to go a different direction. Like the vision for my life was to marry a pastor. And that's not what Noah wanted to be at the time. He wanted to teach history at the collegiate level. So I was supposed to marry someone who was going to be a pastor so that I could serve alongside them in ministry as a musician. Mm -hmm. So you were kind of. You weren't looking anyways. Not really. Like, I noticed. Mm-hmm. I noticed if there were cute guys. And I had I had a crush on a couple of them at different times over the course of my years at college. But nothing serious. <laughs> and I was too busy to date, also. Like, I... I did not have help paying for college other than I think one time Rick and Chris gave me $600 because I was going to be short for um, my bill for the semester. And boy, howdy, didn't I hear about that and how I was such a poor manager of my finances because I needed $600 mm-hmm. for the semester. And I mean, so I worked four jobs simultaneously and then I picked up other side jobs like doing inventory for stores on Michigan Avenue and stuff here and there. And in the midst of all this, I was taking 18 credits. According to Rick, I had to get all A's. <laughs> and um I mean 18 hours is a it's a hefty workload. I I always it was like 12 hours cuz anything cuz I was also working, you know, mm-hmm. multiple jobs, but like 12 hours and a couple jobs was rough enough. Like 18 hours, that's that's a hell of a workload in itself without any jobs. Yeah. So, I mean, I was never around. I was 
like they started calling me like the ghost on my mm-hmm. dorm floor because if I wasn't in class, I was at work. And if I wasn't at work, I was closing down the library. And then after the library closed, I would go back to my dorm room and I'd be up most of the night studying, mm-hmm. which was hard on my roommates. Um, but I didn't know what else to do. So a lot of times yeah. I'd go out to the common area too. Mm-hmm. Um, if they needed to go to bed, I'd go out to the common area and... So you weren't getting like any help like financially from your parents to no, like, and, go. No, and I wasn't allowed to um get any student loans. And at the time, Moody wasn't taking any federal aid or student aid because they didn't want the government to be able to have any control over them. Mm. And indeed, when they did start taking federal aid, the number of Title Nine uh violations and reports they had. Oh. I'm so proud of it. <laughs> um so you're so you're working on multiple jobs just to pay tuition. Mm-hmm. And then I also had a lot of medical bills because I was really sick through that time. Um, I I know now that it was PTSD from my childhood. I had complex PTSD, but it presented very somatically for me because mm-hmm. you know I wasn't allowed to talk about everything, anything. So I had like a lot of stomach issues and fatigue issues and skin issues, and then eventually it got so bad. That like my heart and my, I think it was my heart, my liver and kidneys all started shutting down. Wow. It was, it was bad. Like it was traceable in my medical Mm -hmm. records. Like, okay, we did this test and now like a quarter of the year later, it's worse. And now six months later, it's worse. And, and part of that was like, I I mean, I think I would have been okay financially had I not had all the medical bills. And then I was traveling like, cause doctors did not know what to do with me. Well, you weren't, you weren't allowed to give them. The helpful information. Like yeah. if you would have told them like, oh, you know, I've, I've been raped for the last decade uh, <laughs> and I've well, never seen a therapist. The, yeah. I mean, yeah. The timeline. The, but um, yeah, no, during that time I couldn't. So by the time I got a diagnosis, I'd seen like 30 something specialists and I think six states. Mm-hmm. So I, I not only had like all my co-pays and my medication bills and everything, I also had like travel because Rick and Chris didn't cover that either. So I would like take the train to different parts, like surrounding mm-hmm. states to go to medical appointments. And I mean, did you have a car at this point? No, 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 no. <laughs> I still didn't have a driver's license. Okay. And so I used public transportation for everything. Mm-hmm. And I, the hardest, the hardest part about it was, I didn't have money for food and water. And in Chicago, you can't drink the tap water. Like, you have to filter it. So I was frequently, like, caught between, all right, am I going to have food or water today? Like, which one's it going to be? So I would usually opt for water. And, you know, I would have a Brita filter and a Brita pitcher, but then eventually the filter goes bad. And, like, there were lots of times I couldn't afford to buy a new Brita filter, so then I was I was always like running around trying to find water fountains and always refilling my water bottles and but you can only carry so many water bottles and then we had a curfew so like I couldn't leave the floor after a certain time every night so I'd have to try to like make sure I had enough water in my water bottle to get through until the next time I had access to a water fountain like I was so stressed because mm. my life basically got reduced to like okay I have to go to work I have to pay all these bills I need to do well in class And then also like, I need to eat something. So what I ended up doing a lot of times, um, 
well, first of all, to save money, you, you being on the meal plan was mandatory. So I was for like the first semester, I think, mm-hmm. but it was too expensive. Like I could not yeah, afford they're, it. They're ridiculously expensive. I could not afford it. So I, to get off the meal plan, you just needed a letter from your doctor saying you had special dietary needs. Well, with all my health conditions, that was a real simple ask. Called my doctor. Sure. Here's your letter. Took it to the school. And that was my excuse for being off the meal plan. In reality, I couldn't afford it. And that money instead went toward my um, my school bills. And, you know, as a music major, I had voice lessons and stuff. And that was an added expense. And we, you know, the lab and library fees and textbooks and all of that. So I would save up my change. And the little, like, convenience shop thing sold, you know, those little peanut butter cups? Mm-hmm, like, like the little, little gif. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They sold those for 25 cents. So I would save up my change and then I would buy like a couple of them at a time, whatever I had change for. And I would eat that because it was like protein. And then I, before voice lessons, when I like really needed some energy, I would save up 75 cents so that I could get a bag of trail mix from the vending machine. And then one of my, one of the places I worked had a big dish of mints out all the time and I would just eat mints. Like sometimes I could eat, like sometimes my bills would be such that like, okay, I can go to the grocery store or okay, I can go to the little convenience thing and I can get oatmeal or cereal or whatever. That was another thing I did a lot. The the frosted wheat <laughs> cereal, that was the cheapest thing in the little grab and go thing. Um, so I would get that and like eat it with peanut butter and but sometimes there were like weeks when I couldn't get food. So I would just survive on like mints and um, peanut butter cups and trail mix like here and there. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell anyone like because Rick and Chris already thought I was like a failure at life <laughs> and because I had needed the $600 that one time and, and stuff. So like I wasn't – I just kept it to myself. I just tried to like figure it out. It was usually day to day. There were so many times I had like two cents in my bank account and it it was very, very, very stressful. I think back on that time of life and it, it's just like pure survival. And that's before you add on, like I was carrying, you know, three tons of trauma mm-hmm. from my childhood and grappling with all of the medical implications of all of that trauma. So it was it was a bad time of life. I did anyone I ever like that. pick up on that and and help you at all? Like did they see that you weren't eating? Um well, I don't know. But the, oh, I forgot there was one other thing that would happen. One of the ladies on my floor worked at Starbucks and they have to like get rid of food at a certain point. Mm-hmm. So I would stay up. I forget if I had to get up stupid early or stay up stupid late, but I figured out which day she worked because she would bring food from Starbucks back and like leave it in the common room for everyone. Yeah. And that would have like yogurt, like mm-hmm. parfaits and muffins. Mm-hmm. So I would stay up until or get up or whatever it was, run out to the common room and like cry because there was food. And I would grab like as much as I felt was ethical for one person to take because <laughs> I didn't know how many other people were yeah. in my, and I would take that back to my dorm room and like that would feed me for days. And then like every once in a while when um, the music students had to do a lot of performance, they would bring in Giordano's pizza, Chicago mm-hmm. deep dish. It's the best. 
And, um, and if there were leftovers, they'd be like, who wants leftovers? So I would always like grab leftovers. Mm -hmm. And my first, oh, I don't really want to talk about her. It's kind of crazy that my second, your, your roommate, something like that. Ethical conviction is so strong that even when you're starving, you're like, I'm not going to take all of the food that's getting left here on this table. <laughs> like to me, I would think like, oh, I'm starving. Like someone left a whole table full. Like I'm going to fill my whole backpack and steal all of this and, and eat off of that. But you're, you know, even, even when it came to that situation, you were still like, I'm just going to take what I need and, and well, leave I the rest. I grew up with seven siblings. I'm used to sharing. Yeah. I think one of the only good things that came out of that period of my life was I figured out for the first time in my life that I'm not stupid. So Chris told me. So it's good. You're, I mean, you're definitely not stupid. You're much smarter than I am, but like, I think it's important to point out. I think you got the same ACT score that I did. You don't have to say the number, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before. And like, I went to public, just normal public schools. Mm -hmm. Um, and I took a couple honors classes, nothing crazy, but I'm pretty sure you and I got the same ACT score. And, and you know, you know, I went to a, a nice state university. Um, so, I mean, you're that's, I think that's impressive that I went through a normal public education and probably decently smart <laughs> comparatively. You, and you still were able smart. to you get did a lot of honors stuff. Don't sell yourself short there, but it, it's impressive that you were able to, I mean, take a standardized test and get the same score I did um, hmm. going through a, a normal, traditional education. Thanks. I hadn't thought of that. Mm-hmm. Chris told me every day growing up I was stupid and worthless. Like, I don't know how many times I have been told, you're stupid, you won't amount to anything, you're worthless. You're stupid, you're worthless, you won't amount to anything. And... <laughs> She like she didn't really teach us, but if I went to her with something and she knew how to explain it to me, we have very different learning styles. I'm not a strong auditory learner. That's that's not my preferred method, and that's her preferred method. So she would say something to me once, and if I didn't get it immediately, I was stupid. Mm -hmm. So this like this was just a recurring theme in my life that I'm stupid, I'm stupid, I'm stupid. I was told by the family that my ACT score wasn't good enough. And Rick had this thing like A's are the only thing that are acceptable. B means you didn't try hard enough and C and below is unacceptable. So I was like terrified of getting to college and, you know, getting B's and C's. And I got, I think I got straight A's like that whole first semester. And at the end of the year, I was like, oh my God, maybe I'm not dumb and worthless. Like it was the first time it had even occurred to me mm -hmm. that I had any intellectual capacity. It was the first time you've had anywhere to compare yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, like people in my classes hated me because if we ever had a bell curve, I'd throw it off for everyone. <laughs> so they would come to me that like, was me. Anna, don't, <laughs> don't do well on this test. Really? Can you just try it? And I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times well. I did that throughout like high school the or curve? call. No, I would ask people like, <laughs> can you just like get too wrong? Like you get a hundred on every single test. It fucks everything up. Like, please <laughs> just intentionally answer like two questions wrong. So that the curve is like but a 92. A 
test. <laughs> I didn't care. I love tests. <laughs> tests are our friends. No. Yes. I was the, I was that person. <laughs> well, maybe not necessarily, but it happened a lot that like somebody would inevitably ask the smart person in the room, like, just miss a couple for the rest of us. <laughs> oh man. But yeah, that was that was a pleasant surprise. Mm-hmm. And then I made friends. I had friends for the first time in my life. Um my favorite friends from college were still in touch. Ash and Mandy. Ash is a male. And then um Mandy and I were both Amanda, so we were Amanda and Mandy. And we were all in one of the ensembles, like one of the musical ensembles. So we'd like sing together and we'd we all, like they were I don't know if they were quite in the same boat I was. Oh, because the other thing I found out was I couldn't get a tax return because Rick was still filing Cleaning. with me as a dependent. Mm-hmm. So I would go to do my taxes and I wouldn't get any return. And my friends were all that's getting rough. returns. Yeah. And like that's part of how they like were able to afford school. Yeah, I mean, it goes a long way when you get a you know, eighteen hundred dollar tax return or something while I know. you're in college. I, I know. Yeah, I remember that like Like I remember Mandy telling me the number she got on her tax return and like my jaw hitting on like hitting the floor because I got nothing because Rick had claimed me. Yeah. So I mean this is how terrible that you had it. Like when I was in college and in that period where my mom could claim me or not, we would do our taxes both ways. And I would f- run it all the way through as just mm-hmm. me. And I'd say, oh, well, it's going to give me $1,000 back. Mm-hmm. And then she would run her taxes with me on there and be like, oh, well, I would get $5,000 back. Or she would get $5,000 back if she claimed me. And so whichever way it worked out better, we would file it that way and then split it. She would give you money? <laughs> well, I mean, it was, I guess if you want to look at it that way, like it was, I was an adult um, and you know, it just financially made the most sense for us to split it that way. Like we both profited that way. It was a mm-hmm. win-win, but your parents were doing the opposite. And, and I didn't like, live I'm there gonna, yeah. at like nine months out of the, I only went home for summer break mm-hmm. and I think I had to buy my own food when I was there anyways at that point. And then like I paid for my whole life. Mm-hmm. The only thing was I was on their insurance policy Yeah, because I couldn't afford my own and They definitely used that to control me. But yeah, they didn't, no, they didn't give me any of the money from Mm -hmm. claiming me. That sucks. But Ash and Mandy, like, I love them and I will always love and respect them because they would tell me when I was weird. (laughs) (laughs) Like, they loved me enough to just be like, Amanda, don't say that. That's weird. And they didn't know I had grown up in a cult. But um, I think they could just tell, like, I don't know. I was very socially awkward. And... I think I still am, but they loved me enough to tell me when I was weird and help me find, like, they weren't, like, change for us. They were like, what's a a better way to be you? Like, still be you, but let's maybe clean this area up. Mm -hmm. And I I adore them for that. And we did a thing um, where, you know, they were working. Okay, so this is where we were. I was saying that they weren't maybe quite as... um, they weren't in maybe the same space I was financially, but they were still like, they were still paying their way through college. They were still working multiple jobs each. Like we were all kind of in the same boat or adjacent boats. And we didn't have a lot of time to hang out. So we made a pact where we would get together once a month. We'd take a couple hours, usually on a Sunday afternoon and we wouldn't study. We would just go on an adventure. 
usually a free one. Like one time we played this game where we flipped a coin and at every corner and the coin would tell us if we turned left or right. And Mm -hmm. we just like wandered around and explored Chicago and like, it's such a good memory. But this one, this one day we decided we were going to go get smoothies and this is back in the day when you could actually get a smoothie for three bucks. Gone are the days. But we decided to go get smoothies. And I, I spent like probably $3.50 on a smoothie. And I would save up for this. Mm-hmm. You know, I would save up for our adventure because I knew there would usually be like a small expense to it. And on the way back from that, we were walking back, broad daylight, good part of town. I see this guy walking toward us and I just knew immediately he did not have good intentions. And again, like I'm about six feet tall and Mandy's like maybe five, two. And she was on the side of the sidewalk that was going to go right by this guy. So I maneuvered and got between her and him. And as he walked by, he um, grabbed me very inappropriately. And Ash and Mandy didn't see it because they had gotten a little ahead of me. And I froze up. The guy kept walking. I froze up, kind of had like a meltdown on the street, told Ash and Mandy what had happened. They got me back to school, got me back to my dorm, um, did the best job they could to kind of take care of me. And when I got back, I called Rick and Chris, which was a really big mistake. But I was like crying and shaken and um And I I got Rick and Chris on the phone and Chris, the first thing she says is, what did you do to bring this upon yourself? I fucking hate this. Like (laughs) that whole mentality of just like. Blessings and curses. Yeah. So Chris decided, I couldn't think of a damn thing I had done to deserve um, getting assaulted Mm -hmm. on the street. Because it was nothing. So Chris decided it was because I was being unwise with my money and I had spent $3.50 on a smoothie and God was punishing me for my, for being irresponsible I, I just, and a bad steward. Yeah, I just don't even, the whole thing is just so crazy that that's, that's the way they're brainwashing kids. It's like, oh, something bad happened to you. Not like that's a bad Ask person. Ask me if that like, still happens to me, Kyle. <laughs> uh, I know that still happens to me. I'm, I'm getting better, but like I still... My brain still jumps there first. Yeah. And then I have to correct it and go, no, we don't believe in that anymore. Mm-hmm. But that, like, I just, I made it through that first year by doing all the same old things that got me through the rest of my life up to that point, just pretending I was fine. But trauma finds a way out. Like, it always does. And it can manifest in a lot of different ways depending on the person. But the more you stomp trauma down, I think <laughs> the bigger the explosion is when it finally does surface. Yeah. And um and for me, my my trauma decided to rear its head my second year away at college. So I think that's what we'll talk about in the next episode. Mm-hmm. I don't like Chris. <laughs> I don't think anybody does. Uh we can all join in our shared hatred for her and your parents in general. We need to do a prayer circle so you can all apologize to her for your bitterness (laughs) don't think that's gonna happen (laughs) nor should it so i think we'll call it there uh next episode we'll continue amanda's journey through college and i know there's some good stuff in here because i've i have heard some of these stories before so she's she has some better experiences in college 
Second year away is where my life really started turning around. So we're finally there. We made it. (laughs) Yeah. So we'll touch on that next. Um, We do have the website up, cultileftbehind.com. You can listen to all the episodes on there. Um, I think I just got Twitter set up, so Mm -hmm. follow us there. Instagram's set up. Everything's everything's, set up. Yep. Everything is pretty much cult I left behind is the The handle, handle, um, except the website. Or no, the website's cultileftbehind.com as well. So, yeah, follow us, like, subscribe, share, all that kind of fun Leave stuff. Leave a comment. Yeah, we'll we haven't got any comments yet. We need some more comments. Let yes. us know how we're doing. Um, Let us know what else you want to hear, too. Yeah, and on the website, there's if you go to contact, there's a little spot there. You can leave a voicemail, essentially, and ask questions or... There's and we'll all. splice it in so your voice will actually be on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, and there's also an option there to just email us if you just want to email us a question. You can also DM us on social media <laughs> or leave a comment on yep. anything we post there. So, yeah, reach out to us. Let us know what you think or if you have any questions and we'll try to answer those. So we want to hear from you guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Cult I Left Behind. Until next time. Don't join a cult. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe, and we will catch you on the next episode.